Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 164, Shadow Governments. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, such as extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, over on the members feed, we've got the fourth episode of The Fury of the Northmen. This one covers the early history of the Scandinavians and how the early nomadic tribesmen that moved into the area would stick around and eventually become one of the most feared cultures in the West. If you'd like to support the podcast and hear that episode as well as all the others, you can sign up over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Rita, Brent, and the Haverford Animal Hospital for signing up already. And I gotta say, I've never had an animal hospital support the BHP before. I'm kind of excited about it. And I'm hoping that they listen to the BHP while they're in the office. So, if there are any dogs listening right now, who's a good boy? That's right, you are. You're a good boy. Okay, so when we last left off, King Egbert was ruling over Wessex. King Cuthred, who was Emperor Comewolf's brother, was ruling over Kent. And Emperor Comewolf himself held Mercia. And I call him Emperor, by the way, because that's what he called himself. Also, because he does seem like he was a king of kings. His brother answered to him. The minor kingdoms like the Huissa and Magenseta answered to him. And it seems that Essex also answered to him with their leaders appearing in his charters as dukes, or subregulus, which means sub-king. So he was a bit of an emperor. But the really important part of last week's episode didn't involve a king or a kingdom. It was the fact that Archbishop Wilfred was now ministering over the Archdiocese of Canterbury. The thing is that it looks like there is a growing rift between Mercia and Canterbury, even in the early years of Archbishop Wolfred's reign. A rift that was so significant that it became common knowledge, even on the continent, with Charlemagne and the Pope discussing it. Archbishops were, in many ways, like kings. And while Wolfred might have initially seemed like a natural pick for the position, he appears to have been going about his duties in a way that reflected his aristocratic upbringing. Archbishop Wolfred appeared to be trying to build a consolidated block of territory in Kent that could be easily defended and administered, and he was using his considerable personal fortune to obtain it. From the moment that he put on this pallium, he was buying and exchanging lands outright with the kings of his time. It's highly unlikely that this would have been missed by Emperor Conewulf. And while Wilfred would eventually leave those properties to his kinsmen, Werehard, and some to the church in Canterbury, which was nice of him, Conewulf couldn't see the future, and it could not be missed that Wilfred was building a sizable power block, not to mention the fact that he was minting coins in just his name, with absolutely no mention of the secular leadership that he served under, neither Emperor Conewulf nor King Cuthred. And it should be mentioned that when he left those properties to his kinsmen, that was breaking with church tradition. He wasn't supposed to be keeping properties. Those properties should have been the churches. They should not have stayed within his family. So in many ways, Archbishop Wolfred was running something that was pretty similar to a kingdom. And we have already seen earlier members of the clergy marching around with their own personal armies. It's going to become important going forward, so I'm going to explain something to you that you might have already figured out for yourselves. Part of what's going on in the medieval Anglo-Saxon kingdoms 
is the struggle for power between the official government, that is, the kings, eighthlings, thanes, and lesser nobles, and the shadow government, that is, the archbishops, the bishops, and other clergy. Because make no mistake about it, that is what is going on here, a shadow government. Now, that doesn't mean that we need Jack Ryan to get into a gunfight and safeguard truth, justice, and the American way. The difference between the right to rule between the official and shadow governments, at least when viewed from a modern perspective, is really slight. No one was elected. Well, mostly no one was elected. Sure, archbishops were chosen, and early kings ruled through consensus of their thanes. But the vast majority of the population wasn't taking part in either of those decisions. So from the perspective of the people at large, the people who were most of our ancestors, there wouldn't have been the same level of outrage that we would experience today if we found out that there was a shadow government. I mean, can you imagine how angry people would be if they found out that megacorporations and billionaires were bribing politicians and that they were directly writing laws that politicians would blindly pass on their behalf? Boy, we'd be so mad. But back to medieval shadow governments. The theme of the show for months has been how the royal families are stacking the upper levels of the church with their extended family. And there are plenty of rational reasons to do that, up to and including the fact that people love their kids, and providing comfortable lives for your extended family members, who would otherwise be in a tough position since most of the wealth and land was being transferred to the firstborn son, is something that most people would want to do. However, there are always unintended consequences for any action. One of the unintended consequences is that you have ambitious aristocrats populating the church and seeking power, just like their secular counterparts. And that makes sense, right? A firstborn son and a thirdborn son still live in the same world, and they were raised in the same household. They might have been treated a little bit differently, but the values that they're picking up from their family and their surroundings would be similar. So if a firstborn son is looking to expand his kingdom and holding, why would the thirdborn be completely content and passive? We're all products of our environment, after all. Another thing that started with reasonable intentions was the divestment of land and wealth to the church and the nobility through the power of bookland. The clergy didn't want the nobility to just sit by and watch the church build a monastery, and then swoop in at the last minute and take it. And without bookland, they could do exactly that. So the idea was that with bookland, that is, land that was deeded into perpetuity, that situation would be prevented. And of course, once the nobles noticed that the church got it, they wanted it too. After all, being able to bequeath lands to your heirs ensures that your dynasty remains part of the power structure into the future, and also keeps the king from being able to repossess your lands and give them to another rival family. But, this would lead to nobles and churchmen becoming quite powerful, while also removing some of the absolute power that the king enjoyed. Consequently, we have a clergy that demonstrates a lot of the same behaviors as the nobility, they just go about it in slightly different ways. And in both cases, it was difficult for the king to provide checks to their power. At least, it was more difficult than it was in the 6th century, when he could just seize the lands outright, since they were his anyways. And that brings us back to Archbishop Wolfrid and his acquisition of lands through trade, purchase, 
and other avenues in order to create a contiguous block of land controlled by him. It makes perfect sense that he was doing this when you take into account that he was from a wealthy aristocratic family and living in a world where nobles sought blocks of land since they would be easier to travel to and collect taxes from, and they would also be easier to defend. An isolated piece of land that isn't connected to the rest of your lands? Well, that would be easy for someone like King Egbert to just annex and seize. But something that's connected to all your other holdings, if you wanted to go and take that, it would be a bit more complicated. Make sense? But there was a problem that will be an issue going forward. First was the fact that some of the lands that Archbishop Wolford wanted were in the hands of Emperor Conewulf and his family. And so this conflict between church and state very much looks like a conflict between nobles over who had the right to hold certain lands. Honestly, in many ways, it looks like the story we've seen repeatedly over the years. Kings fighting over who controls somewhere like Lindsay. But it's weird, isn't it? Because the church was supposed to be above all that. They weren't supposed to be building fiefdoms. They were supposed to be existing within the kingdoms and across kingdoms. Yet we're seeing the archdiocese and the kingdoms they minister to getting into heated conflicts over who had the right to govern. Basically, who had the right to dictate policy and gather taxes from the lands within the kingdoms. And when you look at it from what duties the individual governments hold, basically ministering versus governing, it does seem a bit cheeky and odd. But culturally, it makes perfect sense that this would be happening. Though, we're starting to see the problems that this carries with it. The church was functioning as a shadow government, and that was coming into direct conflict with the secular government. And this wasn't just arguments and heated debates. When looking at the record, it looks pretty clear that they were stoking the fires of rebellion against governments that they didn't agree with. For example, Kent appears to have been getting rowdy lately, thanks in no small part to Canterbury agitating for a fight. And we've seen churchmen marching with armies of their own. This conflict seems, well, inevitable. After all, the nobility and the shadow government of the church were looking for very similar things. Land, wealth, and power. There was money to be made. The archdiocese could call them tithes, but for the people living on their lands, they were taxes. And the church was becoming a powerful land-holding noble class. The real tragedy is that one of the potential benefits of the church is that it provides a middle ground for rival kingdoms. It could be an immensely stabilizing force, and used wisely, it could be used to end wars before they even begin. But, at this point in history, things are still getting shaken out in England. And we're seeing that, while the church can be a force for stability, in the wrong hands, it can be incredibly destabilizing as well. Now, the Mercians were no fools. And like the Northumbrians, it looks like they recognized the nexus of power that was growing between the two institutions. And it's probably why, during the Mercian Ascendancy, we see regular councils of Clove Show, which actually look a bit like the councils that were held in Northumbria by Oswiu and others. Now, the councils of Clove Show gave the ecclesiastic and secular authorities a space to gather and handle grievances of a whole variety of issues, both within the church and also within the kingdom. They provided a way for the two institutions to work together. 
The decrees that came out of these councils were an early form of English law that went beyond the borders of the individual kingdoms and instead covered the entire archdiocese. It didn't always work out, and it didn't end all conflict, but they were a smart decision, and they probably should have been duplicated by other kingdoms. But something that I'll keep coming back to is the degree of instability and internal conflict that marks this era. The Anglo-Saxon culture and Christianity in general have become the dominant forces in Eastern Britain. And the Anglo-Saxon wars against the British West have gone remarkably well over the last couple hundred years, and they've spread out to take large portions of Britain. True, they didn't take the best part, which was fiercely defended by my wiry Welsh ancestors. But they did take a lot. Not only that, but rather than a full heptarchy, now there are only a handful of English kingdoms and only two archdioceses. England was more unified than it had been for centuries. And yet, how many times have we seen kingdoms collapse into civil war? How many times have we seen kingdoms go to war with other kingdoms over very small slices of land? How many times have we seen rifts between church and state that got so bad that even the Pope knew about it? This land was still incredibly fractured. And it's not like there weren't threats out there. The Vikings had already struck, and they were a sufficient threat that even decades ago we had King Offa constructing defenses. Yet here we have people getting into fights over, well, let's face it, some pretty petty bullshit. This conflict that we're seeing between Canterbury and Mercia is a great example of this lack of unity between the English on a whole variety of levels. Now, speaking of conflict and a lack of unity, remember how East Anglia rebelled, declared its independence, and started minting their own coins when Wessex bloodied Mercia's nose? Well, afterwards, King Aidwald of East Anglia asked for West Saxon protection. But it doesn't look like he got it. Because at 805, Emperor Conewulf of Mercia was minting his own coins in East Anglia, and King Aidwald vanished. Scholars suspect that this was the result of Mercia suppressing the revolt and annexing the Eastern Kingdom. And it does sound like that's exactly what happened. Now, I'm not crazy about all the infighting, but hey, at least we have some sort of unity. And now there were just three real kingdoms in the Germanic East. Northumbria, the Mercian hegemony, and the West Saxon hegemony. But, if you think that this would lead to stability, think again. It looks like Emperor Conewulf of Mercia was still looking to interfere with Northumbrian politics. King Erdwulf of Northumbria was a friend of Charlemagne, and the sheer number of Carolingian allies on Mercia's borders clearly was a problem for Conewulf. So much so that he had already tried once before to unseat Erdwulf. But, rather than getting rid of the king, all Conewulf got for his trouble was a martyred Northumbrian prince and an invasion of Northumbrians into Mercia shortly thereafter. It didn't go well, but it's not like he could let it drop. If Erdwulf wasn't Conewulf's enemy before, that attempt to unseat him definitely made him dangerous now. So, it's quite likely that Conewulf continued to support Erdwulf's enemies and stoke the fires of rebellion. And in 806, it paid off. And in true Northumbrian fashion, there was a coup. And Erdwulf was driven out. 
Now, it appears that unlike other Northumbrian exiles, he didn't go into Pickland. The ties between the kingdoms might have been breaking at this point. And instead, it looks like Erdwulf crossed the channel and found refuge in the court of Charlemagne. Now, that might have been a good idea because the Frankish emperor was a bit grumpy about what was going on in Britain. We even have letters between him and the Pope talking about it and expressing their belief that Conewulf was behind it all. So Charlemagne, upon receiving Erdwulf and learning about the coup, sent him to Rome to meet with the Pope. You can imagine the Frankish emperor shaking his head and somewhat passing the buck, saying something like, you know what? Let the Pope decide what to do. I'm trying to hold Christendom together here, and you lunatics across the channel just never even listen to me. Hell, you can't even make a decent woolen cloak. So screw it. Go talk to the Pope. And in an odd way, I sort of sympathize with Charlemagne. He was the most powerful leader in Europe, and in many ways, he looked like the return of the old Roman emperors. And then across the channel, you had a bunch of maniacs who couldn't give a damn about his titles or his lands. They were going to do what they were going to do, regardless of what the continent thought. And really, that was nothing new for Britain. Nearly every major emperor of Rome, and even Caesar, had been given a headache by Britannia. Britain's got a Britain, so why should Charlemagne get a free pass? And I'm sure that Conewulf was pretty happy about this situation, because Northumbria was destabilized, and Charlemagne's ally was out of power, and it didn't look like the Frankish emperor could do much about it. Things were coming up Conewulf. But then, in the following year, 807, tragedy struck. King Cuthred of Kent, brother of Conewulf, died. Now, how did he die? What was happening in Kent? I'm sure you'd like to know, and so would I. But unfortunately, the monks were writing about, and I'm not making this up, an eclipse. Yeah, the entire entry for the year 807 was about the eclipse that they saw in August. Great job, guys. So, it isn't clear how he died, whether it was foul play or whether it was of natural causes. But it's clear that Kent has been nothing but trouble for Mercia. When they first took it over, they tried to let them keep their own kings and just brought them into the hegemony as a sub-kingdom. And that did not work. Then they tried to put Mercians directly in charge of them. And now the emperor's brother is dead. They've tried all sorts of things, but every time, the consensus from Kent was, we don't want to answer to you damn dirty Mercians. And that just wasn't going to fly with Emperor Conewulf. So this time, he went the full nine, and he annexed Kent directly. That was an extremely aggressive move, especially considering the fact that King Cuthred of Kent, his brother, well, it looks like he probably had a couple sons who could have inherited the throne. But it looks like King Conewulf wasn't going to take any chances with his nephews. He would rule it directly. Well, not too directly. When looking at the charters, Conewulf does get involved in Kentish politics, but he does so primarily from outside the kingdom. He was sort of the Anglo-Saxon version of King Richard the Lionheart. Sure, he was ruling over that region, but he didn't seem all that keen on the idea of actually going there. So instead, Conewulf ruled through a few noblemen. In particular, Abbas Quenthrith, who was his daughter, Abbas Selithrith, and Archbishop Wolfred. That's an interesting choice, isn't it? 
You've got Wolfred grasping for power, and Cone Wolf goes and turns to him. But, hey, maybe he didn't have a choice. Wolfred might have just been too powerful for him to challenge. Whatever the case, though, this hands-off approach and the fact that he failed to establish a broad base of clients and allies was a huge mistake. Now, I know that lately the BHP has been a bit like a lesson on what to do or not to do if you ever end up a leader of a medieval fiefdom. And honestly, this is going to be another lesson that you might want to write down just in case. Get local support from your lands. I know that the locals are weird and meeting new people can be awkward, but damn it, this is kind of your job. Get out there and meet them. You don't have to talk to the peasants, and why would you want to? They're smelly and just want to talk about how they're starving. But you have to at least talk to the local nobility, because if you don't, who will support you when trouble comes? Who will let you know when there are rumbles of discontent? It's the same principle as community policing. If you know the community, and the community knows you, then you might be able to head off issues before they crop up. Well, unfortunately, Emperor Conewolf didn't listen to the BHP, and consequently, he seems to have largely left Kent alone. And that was stupid. Kent, and Canterbury in particular, was quite rebellious. And because he wasn't making allies over there, he wouldn't have much local support against the machinations of Archbishop Wolfred. And Wolfred was quite a problem. Now to be clear, I'm not accusing Conewolf of lacking foresight for a future conflict with the Archbishop. No, I'm lambasting Conewolf because he failed to take into account that he was already in direct conflict with Wolfred, and it was so bad that it was already known by Charlemagne and Pope Leo III. I mean, they were writing about it. And judging by the record, the issue appears to have been, you guessed it, who controlled the various plots of land. Conewolf had them, and Wolfred wanted them. This whole situation really was Bishop Wilfred of York all over again. And yet Conewolf decided to leave him in charge. It's just madness. Meanwhile, in Rome, Erdwolf was meeting with a papacy and they decided to restore this exiled Northumbrian to his home. So that was nice. Now, usually, this would be referred to as interventionism, right? A foreign government deciding to change who ruled based upon their own preferences. However, this wasn't a foreign government. This was the church. And it wasn't really foreign either when you think about it. The church was active and present within Northumbria through its own clergy. That's why I keep referring to it as a shadow government, because it isn't like there is an outside force changing the policies and directions of the kingdoms. Rather, there's an internal body of leaders that are doing that. Sure, they have foreign connections and answer to leadership that resides outside of the kingdom, but it is still active within the kingdom, and they were doing things that impacted the secular and political world. And to be clear, if these guys were getting involved with the kings and nobles to teach them how to be better leaders in the model of a Christian ideal, I wouldn't be focusing on this as much as I am. The reason why this is a theme for this episode is because Wolfred and others weren't ministering to the leadership on how to be better leaders. They were competing with them for power. In certain ways, they could be compared with the various dynastic factions that we see jockeying for power and maneuvering against each other. It's a fascinating aspect of medieval European life that dominates large portions of our story. 
So, in 808, the Pope decided that Eredwulf needed to be let back into Northumbria. He and Charlemagne worked together, and they sent their envoys to escort Eredwulf back. This was quite a show of power for both Leo and Charlemagne. However, Britain was still Britain. Even today, if you got a group of Englishmen together and asked, Are you European? You better be prepared for quite a spirited debate. Well, as spirited as the English can muster. And so, it looks like despite Erdwolf's impressive friends and the envoy he brought with him, Northumbria was not going to let him back on the throne. He can be in the kingdom, but he can't rule it. The perspective appears to have been, let the Europeans handle European matters. And they're welcome to their opinions, but Northumbria can handle its own issues, thank you very much. Consequently, Roger of Wendover says that Aelfwald took the throne of Northumbria. And of course, we know nothing of King Aelfwald. And 808 as well. I guess there wasn't a weird shooting star that year. But, while Eardwulf never retook the throne, that didn't mean that the church's involvement in secular rule was over. In fact, it was just beginning. All right, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, The Lot. And you can find all of those at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>